With unbelief comes judgment. With belief comes life. And with faith comes the power of God to accomplish the seemingly impossible. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. There is an expression that has become a bit of a cliche in church circles. It has often served as the inspiration for the name of new churches and ministries. It appears in sermons and Bible studies, but while it has become a bit of a cliche, there is some truth behind it, and I want us to consider it for a moment as we begin our message today. And that expression is the journey of faith. The journey of faith. The journey of faith describes how many of us are traveling a path toward greater and greater faith in Jesus. For some, it is a path toward initial saving faith in Jesus Christ. For those who already do believe in Jesus, it is a path toward greater and greater maturing faith in Jesus. Now, some of us are at very early stages, while others have traveled the path for a long time. And some of us here may be in early stages, which is sometimes called seeking. You are looking for answers to the big questions of life. How did I get here? Does my life have meaning and purpose? What is the most important thing in life? What happens when I die? Perhaps you have questions like that or questions about who exactly Jesus is and what it means to believe in him, to follow him. Many of us, however, have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. You believe in Christ, but you are looking to grow in your faith. You want to know Christ better. You want to experience the fullness of his will for your life. But wherever you may be on the journey of faith, I pray that you will be challenged and encouraged today to vigorously pursue Christ. We are continuing then in our series, Unique, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a harmony of the Gospels, taking the messages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and putting together into one harmonious uh, flowing account, following the order of events as suggested in this book by John MacArthur called One Perfect Life. For today, then, we're looking at unbelief, belief, and faith. A harmony of John 12 and Matthew 21 and Mark 11. And what is the big idea? What is the big takeaway from the message today? Well, I want us to see is this, that with unbelief comes judgment. With belief comes life. And with faith comes the power of God to accomplish the seemingly impossible Unbelief brings judgment. Belief brings life. Growing faith, confidence, trust in God brings the power of God then to accomplish the seemingly impossible. Before we look at our text here, a little context, Jesus has journeyed to Jerusalem for the final time in his earthly ministry. He was anointed in Bethany by Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. He knows that he will soon be going to the cross where he will give his life. He has clearly presented himself to the nation, but many misunderstood him, and the ruling religious authorities rejected him. 
They wanted to kill him, but they were also fearful of his popularity among many of the people. Jesus wept over the city because he knew the unbelieving hearts of the people, and he knew the judgment that lay ahead because of their rejection of him. Earlier in the Passion Week, we read before about how he had cursed a fig tree because it was not bearing any fruit. And Jesus used this as an object lesson for the judgment that awaited the nation because of their fruitless unbelief. And today, then, we want to pick up on that theme of unbelief, belief, and faith. Starting first in John chapter 12, John chapter 12, verses 37 through 43, we're told, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So first we want to talk about unbelief. You know, from the beginning of his gospel, the Apostle John had been uh, sounding the theme of national unbelief, the rejection of the nation as a whole. And John now explains that in spite of all that Jesus has done, in spite of all of his miraculous signs, they still would not believe in him. I think that says something. Sometimes we think, you know, something, if God would just make things more obvious, more clear, then more people would believe, right? And yet that isn't the case. In fact, here he had very clearly revealed himself. Could he have done anything more to convince people with all of the miracles and the signs that he had done? And yet, and yes, some believed, some believed, but most did not, including the leadership of the nation, which rejected him. And it really was an unrational, an irrational unbelief, as sin always is, irrational. So John points out, though, that this unbelief on the part of the people, this irrational unbelief, had actually been predicted by Isaiah the prophet. And the clearest Old Testament passage that we have concerning the suffering servant is found in Isaiah chapter 53. And it begins there by stating that Israel, that they would not perceive God's revelation in and through the servant. It says, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Implies that only a few have believed. But then John quotes again from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, to explain that the nation as a whole was unable to believe. Unable to believe. Why? Because they had constantly rejected God's revelation. He had judged them with judicial blindness and hardened their hearts. People in Jesus' day, like those in Isaiah's day, refused to believe. 
We're told they would not believe, and therefore they could not believe. You know, as we have said before, that so often that, that belief is not just about being presented with facts and going in like a computer program into our brains. We put these in there, then we, we come to a, a, ro- a logical, rational conclusion, right? But it doesn't work that way with belief, does it? Because we have so much more invested in that, that sometimes we may be given all of the facts, but we still, we don't believe, we choose not to believe, or we refuse to believe. Why? Because of the implications that that might mean for us, right? And so we're told then that they could not believe then because God had hardened them, had hardened their hearts and, their, and blinded their eyes. Why? Because of their refusal to believe. It was judgment. And sometimes God brings judgment on people for their unbelief, by making it impossible for them to believe. They would not believe, therefore then they could not believe. You know, we see some other illustrations of God doing this in the scripture. It's God's judgment for persistent sin and a hardening of our own hearts, that this is a common theme. In Exodus 9, we read there what? Of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Because Pharaoh hardened his own heart, right? In Romans chapter 1, we see God giving people over to sin and hardness of heart as they reject him and exchange his truth for lies. It's a judgment on them as they willfully reject him and exchange truth for lies. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see about something here as the end times as God sends a strong delusion upon people at the time of the Antichrist because of their refusal to believe the gospel. So we see God's judicial hardening of people's hearts when they refuse to believe. And John understood that to be happening now here at the time of Jesus and his revelation to the nation. Interestingly, we see there in this vision recorded in Isaiah chapter 6, we're told that Isaiah saw the Lord Almighty. That is, he saw God. He saw Yahweh high and lifted up. And John writes that Isaiah saw this glory that Isaiah saw was Jesus's glory. You see a little implication here by that? If Isaiah was seeing the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh, and John says Isaiah was seeing the glory of Jesus, what does that mean? Who is Jesus? Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Amen? Amen? So Isaiah then spoke about him. For many of Isaiah's prophecies predicted the coming of Messiah, this Jesus of Nazareth. But in spite of massive national unbelief, the situation was not hopeless, however, because God always has a remnant. The nation as a whole had rejected him, but there were many individuals who had believed. Even some in positions of power and authority, but they were afraid They were afraid of being put out of the synagogue, so they did not openly confess him because they feared men's opinions and they loved men's praise more than they wanted God's praise. And that's always a temptation, isn't it, for us? John goes on to tell us then, Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world 
that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. We see unbelief of the people, but then also the hope and the promise of life for those who believe. Jesus cries out here, indicating the importance of this issue before the nation. Jesus is the perfect manifestation, the perfect representation of God, the one who sent him, God the Father. So to see Jesus is to see the Father who sent him. To believe in Jesus is to believe in God. Jesus came to lead people out of Satan's kingdom of darkness into God's kingdom of love and light. And since Jesus is God's word, his revelation to people, God has spoken decisively and finally in him. We're told whoever believes in him will not remain in darkness, but rather will have light and life. And the issue here then is the command of the Father. To obey the Father is to come to eternal life. To reject the Father's word, which is Jesus' very word, is to abide or to remain in death. Moses had predicted the coming of this great prophet, one who would speak for God. Moses said, you must listen to him. And so that condemnation, judgment at the last day, is the judgment for those who reject the one the Father has sent. But Jesus says here, his purpose at this coming now, his purpose, he did not come into the world the first time to judge the world. He came the first time to do what? To save the world. The second time, what's he coming to do? To judge, and he will. But this first time he came was to save, not to judge. But rejection of God's revelation inevitably brings a hardening in sin and ultimately brings God's judgment then. Told when evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. And therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. 
And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So we've seen unbelief, which brings judgment, belief, which brings light and life. But then faith, faith in God's power, which accomplishes the seemingly impossible. You'll recall from a couple of weeks ago, we saw where Jesus had cursed this fig tree. He was hungry. He went to the tree, and it should have had fruit on it, but it didn't. And he cursed it. And he didn't do that because he was really hungry, and he's going to get this tree for not having it. He was doing it, what, as an object lesson, that a fig tree was a symbol for the nation. And so when he came to this, this tree that should have had fruit and found none, he cursed it, saying he was bringing judgment on it because of its fruitlessness. So he had judged that just the, the day before, cursed it. And now they come back and they see how it had so completely withered away. I always found that somewhat interesting here, how the disciples were just so stunned and amazed by this. Think about this. Think about everything that they had seen Jesus do. Thousands of miracles over these three years here, right? They had seen him feed 15,000, 20,000 people with a couple of fish and, 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 breads and loaves of bread, right? They had seen him, on a couple of occasions they saw him do that. They had seen him walk on water. They had seen him raise people from the dead. And now he had cursed this tree, and they're amazed at how quickly it withered up, right? Isn't that something? That's just like us, isn't it? How we're just amazed. We see God do things, and then God does something else. And we're amazed. Look at what he did. But that's how we are, right? So here they are. They're amazed at how this tree has so withered up. And again, remember, this is an illustration of judgment on the nation because of their fruitlessness and their unbelief. But here they see it then. And so addressing Jesus as rabbi, Peter then speaks of the tree's condition with great surprise at how this total destruction had come upon it so quickly then. But Jesus responds to that by saying what? Have faith in God. Don't be like this tree that is fruitless. Don't be unbelieving and fruitless and incur judgment, condemnation. Rather, what? Have faith in God. Have faith in God. What is faith? Well, the faith that rests in God is an unwavering trust in him. It's an unwavering trust in his omnipotent power, in his unfailing character and goodness. Circumstances of our lives don't always line up the way we would like, do they? And we go through hardships and painful circumstances, but we're exhorted to have faith in God, to trust in God's power, in God's purposes, in God's promises, in God's character, in God's love through it all. Have faith in God. And so Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, listen up, listen up. He says, this is important. And he says, 
If you have faith and you do not doubt in your heart, you can say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. Obviously, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole, exaggeration here. I don't think too many of us are going to go around literally casting mountains into, into seas, are we? But what it is, it's a figure of speech in, 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 the, in that time to the Jews. To, to move a mountain referred to something which just was, what? Seemingly impossible, beyond human ability to do. It's a figure of speech for that. The seemingly impossible. Why do I say seemingly impossible? Well, because if it was truly impossible, it couldn't be done. But we say seemingly, it only looks that way to us because God has all power, doesn't he? God can do the seemingly impossible. And so he says, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will say to this seemingly impossible situation, be moved. And it will. And whatever you ask, you believe in it when you pray you will have them now as jesus was say this was saying this he's standing on the mount of olives and if you're standing on the mount of olives you can look and you can see the dead sea from there not too far away so he was probably saying if you will say to this mountain the mount of olives be cast into the sea that sea right there if you believe the seemingly impossible will happen Jesus tells us to believe, to have unwavering faith in God and our request will be granted. And this kind of faith, this was in contrast with what? The lack of faith in the nation. So they see this dried up old cursed fig tree, fruitless fig tree, and Jesus says, don't be like that. But you have faith, you believe, you trust and do not doubt. And even the impossible will be done for you. See, because believing prayer taps into God's power. Now, the power isn't in our words or in the prayer itself. The power is God and God's will, right? And by the way, that is something that's very important to make clear right here. Jesus is not saying that if you simply believe something hard enough, if you have enough faith... God will do it anyway, whether it's his will or not. How many of you learn that God does not do that, that God does not do something that is against it, that is out of his will, no matter how hard we may pray or believe? If it is outside of his will, it's not going to happen. So what is he referring to here? He's referring to those things that are within his will, but he wants us to what? To, to believe and to trust, to ask So believing prayer then taps into God's power to accomplish the humanly impossible. Faith then accepts it as good as done even though the actual answer is still future. As we said, of course, Jesus makes this promise based on this recognized premise that all of our requests must be in harmony with with what God wills. And this enables faith then to receive the answers that God gives. God is always ready to respond to obedient believers' prayers and they can petition him knowing that no situation or no difficulty is impossible for him.
How many of you have seen God move in your life in something that was just a mountain, seemingly impossible, but you saw God move it? How many of you have seen God do that? Many times, right? But there's something else here, too, that's important for us to note. And that is the importance of a forgiving attitude toward others, as well as faith in God, is also essential for effective prayer. Said when, uh, when the believer stands to pray, if you have anything against anyone, to forgive that person of their offense. And this may be done in order that his Father in heaven may also forgive him his own sins. These sins, these are, these are things that sidestep or deviate from God's revealed will and truth. So divine forgiveness toward a believer and a believer's forgiveness toward others are inseparably linked because a bond has been established between the divine forgiver and the forgiven believer. So one who has accepted God's forgiveness is expected to forgive others just as God has forgiven him. And if he does not, he forfeits God's forgiveness in his daily life. Now understand here, there's a difference between the forgiveness of our sins and the matter of our eternal destiny. When we believe in Jesus, how many of our sins are forgiven? All of them for all time. But what is this forgiveness referring to? What? It's referring to those, those things that get in the way of our intimacy or our relationship, our fellowship with God. These are the things that need to be forgiven, confessed, and forsaken. So in other words, when we refuse to forgive others, guess what? That's going to affect our relationship with God, our intimacy with God. And it also can affect our prayers. So pray, believing that you have it. And do so out of an attitude of forgiveness for others as well. I want to talk about this journey of faith. What is faith? Well, faith is, biblically, it it is trust. It's confident reliance. It's not just something that we believe in our brains and our minds. It's something that involves the whole person in trust and confidence and reliance. It is trust in the words, in the promises, and in the character of God. I love this this article here. There's a a resource I've told you about before. If you haven't ever seen this, check it out. It's a wonderful site. It's called Got Questions. And it is a site that, that answers all kinds of Bible questions there. And they really do a great job, I think, with that. But uh, this is uh, the, an, an article from God Question that talks about faith and what it is biblically. And I want to read some of that to you here. It says, The Bible contains a clear definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Simply put, the biblical definition of faith is trusting in something you cannot explicitly prove. Doesn't mean there isn't reasons for it, right? Or that it's stupid to believe it. It just means you cannot explicitly prove it, but you trust nevertheless, based on the character of the one who made the promise, right? So it says, so this definition of faith contains two aspects, intellectual assent and trust. Intellectual assent is believing something to be true. Trust is actually relying on the fact that the something is true. 
A chair is often used to help illustrate this. Intellectual assent is recognizing that a chair is a chair and agreeing that it is designed to support a person who sits on it. Trust is actually sitting in the chair. All of you, when you came in here today, did you believe that chair was real? Did you believe that chair was capable of holding you up? You may believe that in your mind, but you didn't really have faith until you sat down in it. That was your trust. So he says, so understanding these two aspects of faith is crucial. Many people believe certain facts about Jesus Christ. Many people will intellectually agree with the facts that the Bible declares about Jesus. But knowing those facts to be true is not what the Bible means by faith. The biblical definition of faith requires intellectual assent to the facts and trust in the facts, entrusting ourselves to that, to him. It says, why is this definition of faith so important? Why must trust accompany agreeing with facts? Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, we cannot be saved. And without faith, the Christian life cannot be what God intends it to be. In John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life, his sheep, those who believe in him. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So I wonder, where are you on the journey of faith? I want to speak for a moment to two different groups of people the genuine seeker, and then the growing disciple. The genuine seeker and the growing disciple. The genuine seeker has questions about God and wants to know more. The genuine seeker has been moved by the Spirit of God to move toward God and His truth. The growing disciple has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life, is committed to following Jesus and seeks to grow in the knowledge of Christ. The growing disciple wants to know Christ better and wants his or her life and character to be increasingly conformed to the will and the character of Jesus. So the genuine seeker, I wonder if someone here, are you looking for answers to some of the most important questions of life? Who am I? Does my life have meaning? What is truth? Can I know the truth? Can I know God? Does God care about me? What happens when I die? Can I have hope for eternal life? What must I do to be saved? Well, I'll answer some of those briefly. Who am I? Who are you? Well, you are a precious and beloved human being created in the image of God. You came into this world through the natural means of your human father and human mother, but it is God who created this natural means and made us all in his image. And as such, you are a special creation of God. God made you too in his image. And one of the things that that means to be in his image means that you are capable of knowing God and being in relationship with God, your creator. Does my life have meaning? Yes, yes it does. It has meaning now and meaning forever. 
The meaning of your life is bound up in your relationship and connection to your creator. You can know your creator and you can know the joy of abundant life now in him and eternal life forever in him. The meaning of your life is to know God and enjoy him forever. When you are in a right relationship with him, the things that you do today and throughout all the days of your life that honor God will be remembered and rewarded by God forever. There is no greater meaning in life than to know God and to enjoy him forever. What is truth? Philosophically, truth is that which corresponds to reality. But it is much more than just a philosophical construct. Ultimately, truth is a person. Truth is God. Truth is Jesus Christ. Truth is all that God is, says, does, and promises. His word is truth. And the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, without error, truth of God. And what he says in here, you can trust for eternity. Can I know the truth? Yes, you can, because truth is a person, and you can know a person. And that person is Jesus Christ, who has revealed himself. You can know Christ by faith, and thus know the truth. And because we have his written word revealed here, you can know what God wants you to know. Can I know God? Yes, you can know God. How? Through faith, trust, reliance on the person of Jesus Christ. So reach out to him. Perhaps he is calling to you now. And say yes to his calling. Say, yes, Lord, I want to know you. Does God care about me? God cares more about you than you can possibly even imagine. Scripture says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And he cared so much for sinful human beings that the son of God left behind the glory of his heavenly throne, humbled himself, took on human flesh, and was made human like one of us. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law, He freely went to the cross where he was punished for our sin. He took upon himself the just judgment that was due sinners for all of their sins. He died, he was buried, and then on the third day he rose from the grave and he achieved total victory over sin and death. He proclaimed his victory and commissioned his disciples to share this gospel, this good news of victory and life. So does he care about you? Yes, that's why he came into this world. That's why he died. That's why he calls you to believe in him today, not tomorrow, today. So what happens when I die? Well, scripture tells us that we live this one life and after death, then comes the judgment. The righteous, those who have been made right with God through faith in Christ, will live and reign with God forever in a new heaven, and a new earth. But the wicked, those who have remained in their sin, will be subject to eternal judgment, eternal condemnation, and hell. Can I have hope then for life, for eternal life? And the answer is yes, that you can have hope today 
because hope is the absolute assured promise of God. You can have hope today through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what must I do to be saved? Well, the Bible states it very simply and clearly. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. To believe means to trust wholeheartedly in Jesus. It involves repentance or a change of mind, turning from sin and turning to trust in Christ. Admit your sin and turn from it. Believe in Christ's perfect life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection, and you will be saved. And yes, it really is that simple. Now, I didn't say that following Jesus is always simple. It's hard sometimes, isn't it? But the way one comes into a right relationship with God through faith in Christ really is simple, that simple. Well, what about the growing disciple? I also want to talk then to the growing disciples here about the journey of faith. You've turned from sin. You've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life. And when you did that, your life changed forever. You came into a right relationship with God and God went to work in you to begin conforming you more and more to the image of Jesus Christ and he is relentless. He is relentless in that task and he will not stop until the job is finished and it will never be complete in this life but it will be complete one day. You will stand before him perfect in practice as well as in position or standing before God. So for growing disciples, followers of Jesus, our lives should be marked by a continual pursuit of knowing Christ better and better and trusting him more and more with all of our lives. Do you want to know him better? Do you want your faith, your trust in him to grow Well, how can we grow as followers of Jesus? Well, let me suggest a few things today. First off, I think is is practicing the biblical spiritual disciplines. Biblical spiritual disciplines. These are tools God gives us to help us to grow in our knowledge of him and in character to Christ. What are these spiritual disciplines? Well, it's Bible intake, getting the word of God into our lives It's hearing the word of God. It's reading the word of God. It's studying the word of God. It's meditating on the word of God, memorizing the word of God, and most importantly, what? Believing the word of God, acting on it. Bible intake, prayer, talking with God, fasting, special times of of prayer, fellowship. That's our relationship with others. We need one another. Worship, giving God the honor that he is due. Service, using the gifts and abilities we have been given. Evangelism, sharing the good news. These are some of the biblical spiritual disciplines that help us to know God better and to grow in our faith. First, practice the biblical spiritual disciplines. Two, choose to view the circumstances of your life through the lens of God's eternal purposes. It's a fancy way of saying what? No matter what happens in your life, and sometimes some very difficult, painful things happen in your life, I have been through a pretty big challenge my, myself here of late. And the, and the question is, is okay, how am I going to view this? Am I going to view this as something to be miserable about and complain about? Or am I going to view this as something that God can and will use ultimately for good purposes and to grow me through this?
I promise you, God will use it for good in your life. God will grow you through it if you choose to think of it that way. Third thing I think is that I've, I've learned more and more about myself here is the importance of practicing gratitude daily. Just being grateful for so many things and, 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 and verbalizing it constantly to God. It's a wonderful way to grow in faith is by verbalizing constantly your gratitude to God. It makes you so aware of God's goodness and God's love and God's faithfulness. And we grow in faith when we recognize daily his faithfulness already given to us. And finally then, remember. Remember his faithfulness regularly. Make a point of it, of rehearsing in your mind the ways that God has proven himself faithful to you over the years. Whenever I read this, this passage that we just read about the fig tree and the cursing of the fig tree and what Jesus says about faith after that, there's a story that comes to mind that I think God sometimes communicates with us in unusual ways. How many of you believe that God sometimes communicates in unusual ways, right? Now, I do not recommend that we go around looking for all the time for God to speak to us in unusual ways. We would do well to do what? To stick to the scriptures and the wise counsel of godly friends as our normal course of action. That said, I think he does sometimes communicate in unusual ways. And I want to share a story with you that many of you have heard this story before, and you're about to hear it again. But others, you have not heard this story, and I wanted to share it with you. Um, Some years ago, I was learning to play golf. And a man in the congregation here, Scott, Scott Strange, he was my very capable and patient teacher. You needed a lot of patience, didn't you, Scott? Still do. I was just going to say, still do. And you beat me to the punch. Still do. Yeah, absolutely. Now, <laughs> it, uh, it seems that I have a particular talent for somehow always managing to hit my drives into trees. Anybody good at that? No matter if there's one tree on the whole course, I'll somehow manage to hit that tree before we're done, right? Well, we were at a course in Twin Lakes, Wisconsin. I think it was a par four. I hit my first shot into the fairway, and it was about 200 yards shy of the green. And so I'm lining up my next shot when someone points out that there is a tiny little tree about 150 yards up ahead, just to the right of the fairway. I want you to know that this tiny little tree that was probably about this big around, okay, had no business whatsoever being there, but nevertheless, there it was. And everyone joked with me saying, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree. I line up my shot, I take my shot, and what did I do? I hit the tree. (laughs) Folks, I could not have hit that tree on purpose. If I tried it in a million years, I never would have been able to do it. But I did. Well, everyone laughs, thinks that's funny. A couple of weeks later, I find myself then in the exact same situation there with that. Everyone jokes with me, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree. I take my shot, and what do I do? I hit the tree again. So remembering the story in the scriptures about the cursing of the fig tree, I walked over to the tree, I put my hand on it, and I said, I curse thee. We come back a few weeks later. That tree doesn't look very good. (laughs) I think, hmm, that's a little odd. 
We come back a couple weeks after that. That tree has turned black and it is crawling with bugs. I'm feeling incredibly guilty at this point. (laughs) So I walk over to it, I put my hand on it, and I say, I bless thee. That was the end of the golf season. We come back next spring, and the tree looks fine. It was fully recovered from whatever was ailing it, and it looked healthy. And I was greatly relieved. And so reflecting on all of that, I remembered what Jesus said after he cursed the fig tree. What did he say? Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. You know what? I took that as God communicating to me a very valuable lesson, which I have never forgotten. Now, that is a true story. If you don't believe me, ask Scott. Scott, is everything I said true? In fact, Scott has commemorated that event with a wood carving which now sits in my office if you'd like to see it. But while we're on the topic of unusual communication from God, how many of you know that God has a sense of humor? A couple of weeks ago, I was driving and listening to sports talk radio. I know I'm supposed to be listening to Moody all the time or that, right? But no, I was listening to sports talk radio And the hosts of the program were interviewing Josh Barfield, who had recently been hired by the Chicago White Sox to serve as their assistant general manager. Josh was explaining how he was out driving near his home in Arizona, and he had been offered the position with the White Sox, and he was considering it when he noticed a license plate on a car nearby that said Sox 29. Now, the number 29 had been his dad's number, and it had been his number when he played ball. And he considered it a sign from above that he should take the job with the White Sox. Now, how many of you know I can be a bit of a wise guy? So I'm hearing this story, and I say to myself, how do you know God doesn't want you to take a job with the Red Sox instead of the White Sox? About a minute later... I pull up to a traffic light. The license plate of the car ahead of me caught my eye. It said, Red Sox. (laughs) I kid you not. Very funny, Lord. Very funny. So as I said, God, I think, does communicate in unusual ways sometimes, and he has a sense of humor. But please don't seek those out as their normal course. Be in the word of God. Follow what this says. Listen to wise counsel from good friends in the Lord, right? And pray. But sometimes, so what? Well, I'd remind us of this, that with unbelief comes judgment. With belief comes life. And with faith comes the power of God to accomplish the seemingly impossible. That's good. Do you believe biblically? 
in Jesus Christ, not an intellectual assent. Biblically, it's a whole person response. It's intellectual assent, yes, but it's also trust, reliance. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Biblical belief, whole person trust, reliance. It involves your intellect and your will. It's repentance, turning from sin. Faith, trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. Do you need a mountain to move? Most of us don't have to go looking for mountains. We already have them. We know, don't we? Do you have a very difficult, seemingly impossible situation in your life? Maybe it's financial trouble. Maybe it's relationship issues. Maybe it's a besetting sin. Do you need to trust that situation into God's hands? Pray in faith. Do not doubt. And if it is in accord with God's will, that mountain will move. I asked before, how many of you have seen God move mountains in your life? Remember that. Remember those. Encourage others with your stories and entrust the next mountain in your life into his hands. Do you need to forgive? need to forgive somebody. As I said, there are a number of things that can impede our prayer. Unforgiveness is one of them. Do you need to forgive someone? Perhaps you've been praying for that mountain to move and it hasn't. Maybe God is waiting for you to forgive someone. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful gift of hope and life that we have in Jesus Christ. We know that with unbelief there comes judgment, but that with belief, Lord, there comes life and light, and we thank you for that. Father, to the one who is seeking, I pray, we pray, that your spirit would move their hearts, prompt them, that they would put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life received by grace through faith in Christ, period. Lord, for those of us who have mountains in our lives, maybe we have been praying and the mountain isn't moving because it simply is not your will. Lord, would you help us to accept your will no matter what, accept that and see how actually there can be an even bigger mountain that gets moved when we accept that the mountain we wanted to move isn't going to move. We see that, Lord. See what you're saying to us. Maybe we need to forgive someone. But God, we want to grow. We want to know you better. We want to grow in our faith. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.